Welcome to the Mass Bar Beat Podcast, the official podcast of the Massachusetts Bar Association. It's available free to members of the bar as well as the public, featuring lively discussions about important legal developments, interesting stories about NBA members, and helpful practical information about the law that matter to all of us. I'm Jordan Rich, and today we look at the major reforms to the criminal justice system here in Massachusetts. Legislation passed this spring and signed into law by Governor Baker. And we'll look at how these changes in the law affect all of us. Joining me, two distinguished members of the Bar Association, Attorney Anthony Benedetti, his Chief Counsel of the Committee for Public Counsel Services, or CPCS. That's the Massachusetts agency responsible for providing legal help to those unable to afford it in cases where there's a constitutional or statutory right to an attorney. Anthony's also a member of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Also with us is Attorney Lee Gartenberg, for decades now Director of Inmate Legal Services at the Middlesex County Sheriff's Association and a former member of the Massachusetts Parole board. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. This is a, a watershed moment in Massachusetts in terms of criminal justice. Before we start to break it down and run through the various points that have changed, how big a deal is this? Anthony, you've been working in this area for a long time. I would say that this is the biggest criminal justice reform legislation in probably at least 30 years, Lee. I would agree with that. It's a major change in direction because most of the time when the legislature acted in the criminal justice area, it was to make something tougher. Mm -hmm. And often in response to a headline-grabbing crime, which is tragic, and everybody then acted on emotion, which is very understandable. But you really have to look at the big picture. And I think in this situation, there was a lot of analysis of the big picture. There was a lot of data analysis, a lot of studying, a lot of um, looking at the science of criminology in coming up with this legislation. So this has been a plan, obviously, in the works, going through various changes for, for quite a while. And we don't need to go through the history of it, but needless to say, a lot of work has taken us to this point. So let's begin to break down what's happening here so that the public and the organizations out there who are concerned about this will have a, a good understanding from your perspective. First of all, juvenile justice, there's a big change there. And I don't know who wants to start off We'll uh, throw it open to the panel here. Anthony, would you like to talk about how this bill affects juveniles? Sure. What this bill does with respect to juveniles is it recognizes that juveniles are different, different from adults. And so how you respond to certain kinds of conduct should be different than how adults should be different than when adults commit certain kinds of conduct. And what this bill does is... One of the biggest pieces is it removes children below the age of 12 from the criminal justice system. So anyone, any child under the age of 12 is not going to be handled by the criminal justice system, but is instead going to be handled in a more appropriate manner, uh, possibly by the Department of Children and Families, if there are certain issues that, the, that, that cause the child to commit a particular conduct, they're going to try and address the conduct in a right. different way. There are changes and there have to be alternatives, and you just outlined what some of those alternatives would be for the younger children. But this is a big deal, right? Seven years old to 12 years old. Prior to this, they were treated as criminals. That's correct. Okay. Lee, any thoughts on the juvenile change and how just, important this is? Just that there's more emphasis on community-based solutions now rather than just 
having them locked up in the Department of the Youth Services. There are standards about how the system deals with them. And I think there's more of an understanding, as Anthony said, that there are differences in brain development. This has mm. been a trend over several years also. There were some Supreme Court cases that emphasized that juveniles, as far as their criminal culpability, should be treated differently because their brain development is different than that of adults. As we look at these points that have changed, a lot of it has to do with trying to bring down recidivism, a huge issue, right? And a lot of these things that we're going to talk about are aimed at doing just that. So we'll talk about that as we move along. Bail reform, this is a huge part of the bill as well. Uh, Lee, let's start with you. What, what does it do for the average citizen or for anybody for that matter? Well, one thing it does is it lessens uh, the likelihood that somebody is going to be held in custody awaiting trial. They've done studies and people who were locked up in a jail pre-trial were more likely to recidivate. But also a lot of times your financial situation, your ethnic background affected whether or not you were more likely to be locked up awaiting trial. So expressly, it codifies something that the Supreme Judicial Court talked about in a case called Brangen, where every time bail is set, where there's a likelihood or there's a possibility that somebody's going to be held in custody awaiting trial, the court has to look at their economic situation and their life situation in determining whether or not uh, coming up with a disposition that's likely to keep them in custody while awaiting trial is a good idea. Mm -hmm. And Anthony, does this impinge on a judge's um, power to set bail or how does it work in the courtroom? Well, it's important to remember that the purpose of bail in Massachusetts is to ensure that the person is going to come back to court and face the charges. Mm -hmm. It's not based on the severity of the crime. Um, it, it simply is to make sure that they show up in court. And so this does not take away the ability of a judge to set an appropriate bail if there is something in the record to indicate that the individual won't show up to court. It's a big issue, uh, and I know other states have captured this issue and working on it as well, but this is a big part of what we're talking about. As we examine the changes in the criminal justice reform package, widespread throughout the state and affecting everyone, even if we're not connected one-to-one -one with a criminal justice case, we have communities and neighborhoods that uh, have, they are impacted. Uh, number three I have on my list is more use of diversion programs, and this gets into the subject of people with mental illness, veterans issues, things like that. Please talk about that. Well, the first thing, and this goes both to pretrial and sentencing, is that you actually look at the individual that you have in custody. It's not a one-size-fits-all situation. So part of it is determining what their situation is, what their needs are. And um, there's now going to be an Office of Pretrial Services to specifically look at what can be provided for somebody awaiting trial. There are situations where at the time that they first come into court, they can be diverted based on their situation. If they don't have a bad record or you know, their causative factors, factors might be mental illness or something like that, where the court can try to fashion something specifically to tailor their needs that doesn't involve keeping them in custody. There's a provision in the law where the district attorney's offices are supposed to set up special diversion services for people who have mental health issues or substance mm. abuse issues, or especially for veterans. You or Lee mentioned earlier that one focus of this criminal justice reform bill is to lower the recidivism rate. Yes. And this diversion uh, idea is one way to get at that, because what happens is 
people get brought into the criminal justice system, whether you're a juvenile or whether you're an adult, for what are essentially minor offenses. And once you get caught in the criminal justice system, it oftentimes is very hard to get out. It oftentimes means you're going to, the statistics show that the likelihood that you're going to continue to get in trouble increases. And so diverting people from the criminal justice system and try to address what the cause of whatever the uh, the particular conduct was. Is it a substance abuse issue? Is it a mental health issue? For kids, it could simply be um, regular acting out as any, mm-hmm. as all of us have done. We've all made, we've all been young, we've all been stupid, we've all been, we've all made mistakes. Indeed. This diversion idea is, is designed to keep them out of the system. Lee? And aside from being qualitatively a better strategy, there are various estimates about how much it, it costs to keep somebody in custody. People throw around terms. The one I'm hearing um, recently is about $50,000 a year. So you're spending a lot of money for a strategy that's less successful if you hold somebody in custody in many cases awaiting trial, whereas on the street you could have greater success, spend a lot less money and come out with a better result. You uh, already answered the follow-up question I would have asked, and that is the, the the financial implications, which are more positive if you go that route. You know, people are aware that the laws have changed regarding marijuana and other minor drug offenses and so forth and so on. That's why the idea of expungement is so popular with uh, many people, and it became a big part of this criminal justice bill. Let's explain to our listeners, to people out there, what it now means if someone had that minor uh, drug offense, a marijuana-related offense, let's say, as an example, and what it means now. Uh, I think, Anthony, you might want to start on that score. Well, another goal of this criminal justice reform bill in general is when people make a mistake, they get punished appropriately, and then we want them to be able to get back on their feet. Mm -hmm. And one way to do that, especially with, as you put it, lower-level offenses, such as marijuana possession, is to expunge their criminal record, which simply means the criminal record is not going to follow them around for the rest of their life, and people are not going to be able to use it against someone who's trying to get a job. Right. And and uh, this has been a problem now for decades. Lee, you've seen this, this problem, and now this addresses it. Yes. Um, expungement was a process that was very rarely available for adults in Massachusetts, even if there was a question of mistaken identity. So this legislation allows adults to have access to that. For juvenile, um, it's much more uh, extensive as to the basis that uh, something can be expunged, but it's typical of the fact that um, juvenile cases should have a lot more flexibility taking into consideration the age of the person. There's another concept called sealing, which is less than expungement, but what it does is for certain people, it um, allows the offender to say that I have no record because the record's been sealed. It doesn't completely shield it from access, doesn't take it out of existence, but there are some common sense limitations on who can have access to a sealed record. An expunged record is taken off the books completely. Um, Sealing has benefits also. And there is a level of definition when it comes to what is a minor crime here. We should make that point, right? I mean, we're not talking, obviously, we're talking about minor crimes. How do we define those? Well, we we, we have a couple of ways things are broken down in Massachusetts. Of course, misdemeanor and felony. Felonies Mm -hmm. are more serious, violent offenses. But there are minor property offenses, shoplifting, low level of larceny, you know, something like getting into a bar fight, which get treated differently than violent assaults and violent crimes and such. 
let's say someone out there listening has had a felony in the past, maybe five or ten years prior. How does this affect that person? We've talked about the minor crimes. We're talking about felonies, Lee. What the legislation did was it increased the time you would have to wait until you could seal your record. And sealing, as I said, involves making the record not available to some people for the purpose of giving somebody an opportunity to get a job, move on with their life, and be successful. Under the prior law, you had to wait five years for a misdemeanor and 10 years for a felony. Mm -hmm. A lot of the data analysis indicated better intervals would have been three years for a misdemeanor and seven years for a felony, and this law adopts those intervals. And what about someone dealing with employment who's you know concerned that, oh my God, I've got this on my record, how's it going to affect me in, in getting a job? A prior amendment to the law instituted something called ban the box, which prevented an employer from asking questions about your past criminal history on a job application. They can still run your record and look at that, but the benefit was that you'd get your foot in the door and you'd have an interview. And if you impress somebody and then they found out you had a criminal record, you still possibly had an opportunity because you did so well in the interview to get employment and, you know, to start succeeding. Has it changed in any respect, the ban the box? The ban the box is still there, okay. but again, you can seal your record earlier. Instead of 10, it's Instead now Instead of seven. 10, it's seven Got for it. a felony. Instead of five, it's now three for a misdemeanor. And, and the bill permits those who have a sealed record to answer that they have no record when they're implying for employment or a professional license. In addition, licensing authorities have to disclose in advance what offenses are disqualifying. So again, as Lee put it, it allows people to get in, to, in the door, have the interview before certain kinds of information has to come up. There are many uh, areas of oversight that this criminal justice overhaul is looking at, but one that pops out a little bit is involving forensics and forensic laboratories. And we all know about the scandals in Massachusetts, horrific scandals a while back. Anthony, well, been basically uh, sentenced or two, what is this bill doing in terms of forensic oversight? Well, you mentioned the uh, scandals and, and specifically what you're talking about, uh, the two drug labs, the one uh, in the eastern part of the state, Hinton, and then the western mass uh, crime lab. And, and as a result of both of those, thousands and thousands of cases are going to be dismissed. In one way, this bill addresses, at least in part, that sort of situation is it empowers stronger oversight of forensic labs and techniques. And that's critical that we stay ahead of the game in making sure all evidence that's brought into court is legitimate evidence. All right. We're talking about the major overhaul in Massachusetts, criminal justice overhaul, and some of the changes that uh, affect not only people on the outside, but on the inside. So this is where we get to solitary confinement and compassionate release. And uh, certainly we, we hear the expression, oh, lock this guy up, throw away the key. That's in the old... Uh, the old uh, expression from a gazillion years ago. But there is research that part of this bill has been all about the research that indicates there's a right way and a wrong way to put somebody in confinement. So what does the, the bill currently do, Lee? Um, what it does is it sets up a system of oversight over what's called restrictive housing. That's the term of art, um, where somebody's held in a higher level of custody and it encourages corrections officials to be mindful of concerns regarding mental health and such so that uh, the quality and the quantity of confinement is looked into to try to balance the needs for security and for punishment 
with the need for treatment to be cognizant of the person's mental health issues and to try to formulate something where they can work their way out Mm -hmm. and start doing productive things while they're incarcerated. I read where prison officials would be prevented from placing juveniles and pregnant women in solitary. That's one of the aspects of the bill that I'm reading about in just a summary here. But in terms of uh, how this affects the prison population and the prison officials, is are, are they for this? Are they positive about this? Uh, Anthony, have you gleaned any feedback from those in the prison community? We have not, but I think there are pieces in the legislation that are designed to address some of their concerns. Off the top of my head, I know that there is a task force that is created to study suicides by correctional officers. Mm-hmm. So I think there are pieces in the bill that try and address not only the individuals who are in the facilities, but also the people who work in the facilities, which you can imagine is probably a very stressful job. What's happening on the outside, everybody knows, is the opioid issue, a huge problem nationwide. And uh, the last two elements that I have in front of me address drugs and uh, drug abuse. Number six here, the elimination of mandatory minimums for certain low-level drug offenses. I bet, and this was probably debated on quite a bit (laughs) because it's a very controversial issue. What does the bill now state? What does this new change in the law state regarding minor low-level drug offenses? Anthony? Well, the bill eliminates a number of mandatory minimums for low-level drug offenses. And so on one hand, it recognizes that people with substance abuse issues, the way to deal with those is not to lock them up on a mandatory minimum, Uh, which has a number of negative consequences, Mm -hmm. but to treat each individual case um, differently depending upon the specifics. The problem with the bill, or at least one problem we have with the bill, is at the same time they're talking about a public health approach uh, to substance abuse, the bill adds a number of mandatory minimums when it comes to dealing with opioids, which although there is a terrible crisis uh, around the um, the opioid situation, um, we don't believe mandatory minimums is the way to go in addressing that particular issue. Lee? It should be noted that minimum mandatory sentences don't just set a minimum sentence that the court has to impose. There were limitations on classification and programming. So it wasn't just the quantity of time somebody was serving, but it was the quality. A lot of times somebody could be assessed as needing certain things, and then the minimum mandatory provisions in the law prevented the corrections people from directing the person into the kind of programming the assessment tools Mm -hmm. would say were needed. So this flexibility is very important. And an overriding policy in this legislation is to look at each person's individual needs and try to come up with a plan based on their needs. When you have minimum mandatory sentencing, you're also saying kind of one size fits all. Whereas if you eliminate the minimum mandatory sentencing and you maximize the level of discretion, you allow law enforcement people, corrections people, parole, probation to individually tailor programs and solutions for each person based on their individual needs. Is it a hope that this would also counter the the argument that there's a disproportionate number of minorities and um, socioeconomic groups that are affected? Uh, I see you're nodding, Anthony. Yes, and it does this in a number of areas in the bill, but it certainly does it with respect to reducing or eliminating uh, the number of mandatory minimums. Specifically, one example 
the school zone statute, mm-hmm. which uh, in some urban areas, the entire blocks and blocks are within a school zone. So anyone caught up uh, engaging in certain kinds of conduct would be charged with a mandatory minimum. And okay. so what the bill does is it tailors the school zone statute to have it apply more appropriately um, to people who are trying to deal drugs or involving uh, involved with drugs with children. And the school zone statute had rather significant consequences because it added two years onto the sentence for an underlying drug offense that happened to occur. It used to be a thousand feet within a thousand feet of a school. Um, and more and previously it was amended to 300 feet. Um, but that two years had all those restrictions that I mentioned. So you'd have somebody who would commit a drug offense, a nonviolent offense, just based on location. And by the way, you didn't have to intend to be near a school. It was totally based on mm. location. It was a non-intent crime. So the crime could have nothing to do with the school. But because you were close to the school, you got that enhancement of two years in addition to the underlying drug offense. And let's talk about the one aspect of uh this where the legislature got tougher, and that's the fentanyl area. And even if you're not very much involved with understanding what fentanyl is, you know it's very dangerous. You know it's horrific, and it's a manufactured drug that is a scourge that just is killing people left and right. Talk a little bit about what the bill does in fentanyl and carfentanil. Well, it sets up some new, more severe offenses for trafficking in those crimes, and it sets up minimum mandatory sentences. I think the legislature wanted to send a message that those who introduced fentanyl and carfentanil into the stream of drug commerce were doing something very dangerous and very significant. So they wanted to send a message that that was um, not a good idea. And the tragedy of fentanyl and carfentanil is it doesn't take significant quantities to cause somebody to overdose potentially. So it is scary when people, you know, are subject to um, the stream of, you know, um, supply of opiates that have that. And and when law enforcement officials or EMS people come in contact with this stuff, they can be affected. I mean, that's how dangerous some of this stuff is, right? I mean, it's it's horrific. Yes, and I think the courts made some rules regarding how evidence is handled mm-hmm. that have fentanyl and carfentanil because of that concern to court personnel. Let me ask you, either one or both, about the implementation of such a wide-ranging perspective on the law, and it really affects all of us, even if we're, if we're not on the criminal side, where we could be victims or we could be community members concerned. Anthony, this rollout, is it something that's going to be happening over the course of several months or years because of the cost and the systems and the software? I mean, wh- where do you see it going? Well, I can tell you that we, the defense community, have already gotten out advisories on how to deal with different aspects of the bill. I've seen advisories put out by um, police departments as well as the trial courts. So people have tried to get on top of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is a massive bill. Different parts of the legislation take place at different times. And one important um, step that has been taken is... Much of this bill, or much of the reform in this bill is meaningless unless it comes with dollars. Uh, and, and specifically for the portions of the bill that are designed to increase and improve upon uh, reentry to help people when they are getting released from the Department of Correction or the House of Correction. And the legislature and the governor have taken initial steps to try to fund a lot of that. So mm. that is critical for the success of this bill. Lee? 
This legislation was partly motivated by a study done by the Council of State Governments, and one of the things that they said was that uh, Massachusetts could do better in having supervision and reentry services for people leaving, um, serving a sentence, being on probation and parole. And the legislation sets up mechanisms within the sentence to increase the chances that somebody is going to be on some kind of supervision as they come back to the community, but also giving them incentives while they're being supervised in the community to succeed. That's something we didn't have before. And lest we think that Massachusetts is an island operating on to itself, uh, this is a nationwide shift in many cases. Uh, we were talking, Lee, prior to coming on the air doing the podcast, that southern states are implementing some of these kinds of changes. We're not alone in our uh, – we're unique in our approach, but we're not alone in this, right? Right. I mean, if you just do a business-type analysis where you look at a situation where you're spending a lot of money and you're not succeeding, that was what was happening with those long minimum mandatory sentences. It was very expensive – but we weren't reducing the crime rate. We weren't reducing recidivism. And qualitatively, we weren't maximizing how we could help somebody while we had them in the system. Mm -hmm. And there's been a fundamental re-examination of what works. And what works involves, again, looking at the individual, looking at treatment options, having flexibility and tailoring a plan for each person rather than a one-size-fits-all hammer-down approach of long minimum mandatory sentences. Lee, before we close out and, and summarize again, let's let's review the fact that this bill takes into account the economic status of individuals in the state who may not be as lucky as some to support themselves with good legal assistance, people who are you know, on the on the lesser scale economically. This really impacts them, doesn't it? Yes. When it comes to fines and fees, what we were finding was there were people who were violated on probation and having other sanctions imposed because they couldn't meet a monetary obligation. And this bill would require that courts take into consideration somebody's ability to pay, both in setting what they are expected to pay, but also trying to prevent a sanction of incarceration just because you're poor. Mm -hmm. And Anthony, a consideration a lot of people have, and they're thinking about this as they listen, what happens to my ability to get around if I'm beset with a charge or I'm dealing with this on my record? The license question always seems to come up. Has this been addressed at all or is this changing in the current bill? Yes, there is language that reduces individuals' entanglements with the registry of motor vehicles, depending upon the particular uh, charge that they crime they've been convicted of. For example, you, you no longer will lose your license if you default uh, for a court date. You no longer will lose your license if you are convicted of tagging or vandalism. Now, someone might say, why do we want to do that with someone who has vandalized property? Well, if the goal of the system is to make the person who has been harmed right, well, one way to do that would be to require the individual who did the vandalism or the tagging to pay restitution to the, to the individual whose property has been damaged. And the way that person gets the money to pay the restitution, they need to go to work. And how do they get to work? Oftentimes, they need to drive. And so mm. the, the, this legislation in part recognizes that um, people need to be able to make right what they've done wrong and move on with their life and, and continue to be productive citizens. And on top of that, to succeed in the community, unless you live near mass transit, 
you need to be able to get around. You need to be able to get around to go to your job. You need to be able to get around to participate in activities with your children that are related to school. If they have to be driven to and from school, to and from a scout meeting, to and from a sporting event or something like that. If you don't have a car and you don't have a license, then you can't do that. And that's part of living a normal life in the community. One of the aspects of this bill that bears bringing up is the whole issue of data collection and information is power, as we know. Anthony, reflect a little bit on what this bill does and how it changes how we look at data. Well, Lee mentioned that Massachusetts invited the Council of State Government to come in, take a look at what we are doing here and make recommendations on how we can do better to save money, to improve public safety and to reduce recidivism. And I think it was pretty clear that one area where Massachusetts falls short is in data collection. And what this bill does is there are a number of data collection initiatives that are created across the board. Some examples are uh, increased data collection on racial and ethnic um, information on the people who get involved in the system. Uh, juveniles, medical parolees, what are the effects of solitary confinement? Uh, and so the hope is that policymakers then look at the data that is collected and use it to inform mm -hmm. their their legislative proposals going forward. And, and this is information that would be available to various spokes on the wheel. It's not, in other words, uh, contingent on certain people, eyes only. This is the kind of That's stuff correct. that attorneys and uh, people in the criminal justice system in terms of parole, all those things they'd have access to. And the public. And the public. Okay, that's a big deal. And, and Anthony, uh, as an observer and an active participant in seeing these reforms come through, you can attest, I'm sure, to the fact that there were prosecutors and attorneys, Republicans and Democrats. I mean, it's not easy to bang through this much reform, but it finally got done. Cooperation was necessary to make it happen. And in addition to the legislature and the governor, there were a number of interest groups, including the Mass Bar, right. that were involved in providing um, expertise in a number of different areas about what they thought needed to get done to make this work. When David White was MBA president in 2008, the MBA issued a major report on the war on drugs that it wasn't succeeding, advocating for a lot of the changes that are now in this new legislation. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, we think that we're well on our way toward greater success. And for information dispersal, the Mass Bar Association has a lot of uh, opportunities for the public beyond this podcast. Go to the websites, masslawhelp.com, as well as MBA. Uh, MBA's main site, massbar.org, to get information about this changing scope of law. And there's a huge swath of it, <laughs> needless to say. But the Massachusetts Bar Association will do what it can to uh, support the information. I know you celebrated at the annual MBA dinner. I saw you both there. Are you satisfied that in, in the churning of politics and, and law and sausage making that we've accomplished something here? Final thoughts on the overall impact of this bill? Well, we will be back at it next legislative session, pushing for further reform. Um, but I think there's reason for hope uh, in the future, in the near future, because this bill creates a number of task forces and commissions to study a number of, of issues and make suggestions. And so my hope is that we're able to build upon this bill um, beginning next legislative session. Final comments, Lee? Yeah, we're all going to be watching to see how successful 
these changes are and what we can do in the future. It's an mm -hmm. ongoing process of analysis and trying to do better. And everybody, I think, will be involved in looking at what's happening, but looking at how we can improve. Well, you both added so much perspective. Attorneys Lee Gartenberg and Anthony Benedetti, thank you both for spending time on the podcast and also spending time in the trenches because both of you were involved from the Mass Bar's perspective. Great to have you here, and uh, we appreciate the updates. Thank you. Thank you, Jordan. You've been listening to the Mass Bar Beat podcast with our guests today, attorneys Lee Gartenberg and Anthony J. Benedetti. We've been talking about the criminal justice reforms in Massachusetts and the impact they will have on all of us. The Mass Bar Beat podcast available for free at massbar.org and downloadable on most popular podcast platforms, including Apple, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, and more. If you're a consumer in need of legal help, contact the Mass Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service. Call 866-627-7577 or visit masslawhelp.com. Let us connect you to a lawyer today. Mass Bar Beat produced by the Massachusetts Bar Association. We invite you to subscribe so you'll never miss a beat. I'm Jordan Rich. Thank you for listening.